Hello and welcome to the EMG Gold podcast. I'm your host, Mark Koskela, and today I have the pleasure of being joined by Jennifer Kane Bitmoser, a senior pharmaceutical leader in market access, patient access, and patient advocacy. Jennifer has an incredibly abundant background in the pharmaceutical industry, public health, and academia. She has spent time as a guest lecturer at the London School of Economics and Political Science, held positions at the World Bank Institute and the World Health Organization, and has also spent time working with pharma giants such as Johnson & Johnson, Novartis, Roche, and with smaller companies such as Sobe. She's currently a member of the Executive Board for Medicines for Malaria Venture, a public-private development partnership funded by the Gates Foundation. Jennifer grew up and studied in the United States and has spent the past 22 years in Europe having lived and worked in countries such as Denmark, Switzerland and Belgium. She has a keen interest in advancing the health of populations globally and is an excellent and inspiring leader and public speaker. Jennifer, welcome to the podcast and thank you so much for being here. How are you doing today? Mark, thank you so much for this warm welcome. I'm doing great and I'm really happy to be a part of this EMG podcast series. Thank you for the invitation. Well, it's great to have you um, on board. So let's get cracking. So we recently interviewed you in our April issue of Gold Magazine as part of a roundtable discussion on patient advocacy. Within that, you gave us a brief background about growing up in a family of healthcare professionals and how that encouraged you to pursue a related career. I was just wondering if you could go into a little bit more detail about your key role models growing up. Oh, what a wonderful question. I'm super happy to talk about that with you, Mark. Um, As a child, uh, I did grow up in a family that is both caregiving um, from a professional um, healthcare perspective, as well as from an in-home perspective. Um, And when I mean that, I had a very ill uh, grandmother who lived with us. So from a very young age, I was managing her diabetes because she had become sort of blind from from her, the complications of diabetes. So I learned to be a caregiver um, in the home quite young. Um, Also, uh, strangely, I grew up in a kind of family dental practice um, with my father and my my family. Um, And, you know, being a young child who grows up through all of these stages of, you know, adolescence into teenage years into early adulthood, I was a part of caregiving um, and caring for patients uh, on a daily basis through that family business. Um, So the role models, I have to say, are really, you know, my father in terms of really understanding what it means to be totally patient-centric and dedicated on a daily basis, living, breathing, what it means to have empathy, to listen to those patients, to be a part of their lives and be invested in the life cycle approach and the entire family approach. So that was a quite an inspiration for me at the kind of micro level, um, as well as at the meta level from a healthcare practice perspective. Both of my brothers grew up to be physicians. As you see, I grew up to be a public health professional. Um, also, I, as I mentioned earlier, my, my grandmother, I, we cared for her in our home um, with chronic diabetes, and she had, was a long-term survivor um, of type 1 diabetes. Um, when she passed away, it really... Um, was this moment of not only grief, but a moment of the entire family understanding the kind of genetic burden that we have. And we became impassioned as advocates to find ways to raise money for diabetes research, as well as to become a voice, which would be sort of about cure, care, commitment, public sector commitment in terms of creating new legislation that would be um, patient-friendly, patient-focused, care, you know, making sure that we had the right 
community-based healthcare systems, really working again with legislators, with healthcare systems to develop different modes of community-based care, uh, where we as a family now actually fund a professorship in OHSU and University of Oregon um, to, to fund community care practices. And then again, the cure piece is about fun, you know, coming up with long-term funding perspectives that could provide seed money, seed money into early targets that could then be picked up to for large-scale development with pharma. So, um, you know, we became impassioned with this. The, the lightning bolt of that was my mother, um, and she grew up in the ranks of the American Diabetes Association, where she eventually became the chair of the Research Foundation, which is the arm that uh, raises money uh, for early-stage diabetes research. And then she eventually joined the board of the national organization and became the chair of the board. Um, while she was there, not only was my mother a passionate leader of a large um, public health organization, the American Diabetes Association, she was a, a very unique leader that could um, work with people in the highest order of leadership, which is leading volunteers. So finding ways to inspire people to, to, to not only work in an organization and contribute to this larger mission of a world without diabetes, but actually, you know, effectively pay to be a part of that in terms of, as you know, when you're when you are a volunteer, you're paying with your time uh, to be um, a part of those organizations. So I was quite inspired by her. So I would say, you know, we've got these pillars of of, of people that really inspired me. It comes from my family, from my father as a caregiver, all of us around um, that treatment center. And then as my mother, uh, as someone who really mobilized communities of people to really focus on this cure care commitment um, mantra and vision for a world without diabetes. Um, also, I think when you are looking at the world that's so big and you're looking at an epidemic of diabetes or an epidemic of any type of disease at a large scale proportion, it's easy to feel like this is too big. This is too um, big for little me. How can I contribute? How can I mobilize my community? And I think that's one of the things that inspired me through um, my family is that we, you know, finding ways to take those kitchen table conversations and actually operationalize them at the community, national, international level. And by that, you know, my mom was a part of building the um, the, the diabetes uh, world, the World Diabetes Day in November, which was a UN resolution that was passed. Um, in 2007. So, you know, simply people who were advocates around us in our community would flag, hey, you know, there's a World AIDS Day. Um, there's a, you know, World Cancer Day. Why isn't there a World Diabetes Day? And it really, I think, opened all of our minds up to not just this issue around creating World Diabetes Day, but also from an advocate perspective, it, all, it only takes one voice, one idea, and then, you know, you have two and then three is a crowd and you can start to really create advocacy to create micro change at the family level, community level, regional level, national level, global level. So it, it really was this wonderful snowball effect of um, leadership training that I got even just from the family perspective. Wow, that's um, your, it sounds so inspirational, particularly what you were talking about there and with your with your your mother and. And, and I guess one of the things that um, when I was reading through that article again recently was really that the the emphasis I felt that, that the, you had in that in the in the round table around that that compassion and, and that really kind of something that comes comes through in your answer there um, absolutely fascinating 
Great. So, so move, moving on, um, you address patient advocacy as well within your contribution to the roundtable for the April issue of, of Gold. Um, with this question, I guess, could you just tell us a bit more about the value of community engagement for pharma and what potential it has for public health? Okay, great question, Mark. So um, the role of patient advocacy in the role of a pharmaceutical company is dramatically changing on a daily basis at this moment. And I very much contributed, um, contributing as a factor from coming out of COVID. Um, it was, it's allowed um, many pharma companies to have a different type of conversation with patient advocates, with professional patients, with patients themselves. And it really has meant that because the physical barriers have been blocked to receiving physical care, there has been a lot of creativity around how do we bridge those physical barriers of access to finding new digital pathways and and streams. So you see the abundance of of telemedicine. We see more digitization that's coming that really puts the patient in the center. It's almost like a massive love letter from the pharma industry and from healthcare tech, um, digitech, to actually help the patient solve their core issue, which is, you know, physical access, um, communication access, and then coming up with solutions jointly with patients to actually solve those problems. I think um, in the next five years, you know, long gone will be the days of a company saying, I've built this thing. I know you're going to love it. Here you go. Um, And I think that goes, that's very true in healthcare. It's very true in pharmaceuticals. I think it's true in anything that's going to touch the healthcare sector from a promotion perspective or from a a sick care kind of healthcare, sick care perspective is that we will not be able to, in any industry, including pharma, create something in a silo and isolation and then cast it over, cast it over the wall and hope that we achieve regulatory access, payer access, patient access without having a meaningful dialogue uh, with with the consideration of the entire life cycle approach of where we're going to be from the patient's perspective, what's the patient life cycle approach, what could be a molecule's life cycle approach from the pharma perspective, and then marrying those two. And I think, Mark, what's really important is, you know, that that's serious. That's not just oh, we're about to launch a product, we better spend some money and we create some advocacy programs. Or, oh, we have not We have a public policy issue where we need to move, we're trying to shape the environment around um, potential policy, legislative issues, election issues. We're actually talking about developing the product from the very beginning design phase of what does this molecule look like? What are the what's the way we're going to study it? What are the core um, primary endpoints, secondary endpoints? How will we measure the patient experience, the PROs, the patient reported outcomes, but also the experience that they have in a clinical trial? Um, For example, is there too much of a heavy burden on what we're asking of them, uh, which would then dissuade them from actually even enrolling in the trial, which would, again, slow development? So I think even that very first conversation is going to look different instead of saying, here's a trial. Could you please just sign off and say that this is okay? I think there's going to be phases of, um, like we do with payers, like we do with clinicians, having serious consultation on the target product profile or TPP. We'll do that also with patients and make sure that we have that synthesis of their need and their voice at that early stage. Can If you pull that forward, then the regulatory phase, their voice, <clears throat> what we see both in the EMA as well as in the US FDA, 
more stringent criteria and requirements to put the patient's voice and actually put a patient on the panel to be a part of that drug application for marketing authorization. And then once we achieve marketing authorization, the process of achieving um, patient access, market access, funding, pricing, and reimbursement, we see in, in so many markets in Europe, we see very much in the U.S. model as well, that the patient voice is really critical in, um, in overcoming HTA hurdles um, in achieving payer access. That's absolutely fascinating, this kind of move towards pa- patient centricity, I guess. Um, are there any other kind of um, barriers? I know previously I've, I've, I've seen you talking about kind of language being a kind of barrier to kind of patient access is would you care to expand on that sure mark i think this is great um thank you for uh, in fact you know i'm going to call myself out because i already i already used the, the language um i already used the language in a way that could be um actually not as patient centric so we talk about designing clinical trial primary endpoint secondary endpoint patient report outcomes so patients that have lived through the disease, if and specifically if it's a rare disease, they're not thinking in the terms of, oh, primary endpoint, secondary endpoint, patient reported outcomes. They're looking at, hey, is this product going to work? So we don't even speak about efficacy. We don't speak about effectiveness. We think we speak about, you know, the trust that a patient can have in that therapy and the, the trust that they that they have in, in taking the medicine, but also in the treatment pathway and process. And so Already, we need to detect and de-jargon our language, which we're very familiar with inside industry, both pharma and healthcare industry, and really use the language of patients. So does this product work? Is it inconvenient for me to be a part of this clinical trial? Or is it inconvenient to me to be in this study? It sounds very interesting. I think I'm going to get better care as a result of this clinical trial. But does it actually, is it a hassle for me? Um, things like, you know, does this require hospitalization to be a part of the, the clinical trial? Will you fund that process? So making these things in the consent forms very, very clear about the commitment that's required of a patient when they are actually enrolling in a trial. Um, of course, code of, co-designing as well. So I think this part about, you know, the design phase and then further on in access as well, we have to de-jargon our language and we have to really meaningfully have a partnership and conversation where we listen to understand what is the language, what is the experience that this patient is going through, what is truly the pathway that they have through a healthcare system, through the diagnostic process, through the treatment process, um, the duration of time that they have to wait for a a diagnosis, for example, and then how do we embrace that understanding and design something together with them that actually makes sense in their language. Oh, thank you. Really great to hear your answer there. Um, so moving moving on, I guess ultimately get, getting through the past years obviously required creativity, collaboration and improvisation across most industries. Um, you, you've previously spoken about your time studying the art of improvisation and how many doors it can open when implemented in the right places. So how has your background in improvisation helped you lead teams since the COVID-19 crisis began? Ah, I, I had a feeling you were going to ask me this question, Mark. So thank you for bringing <laughs> it up. So it's good to, to lighten the mood with a little levity and, and add a little bit of um, talk about improv and, and comedy. Um, I was bitten by the improv 
bug in 2012. And I think once, once it sinks its teeth into you, it never really lets go. And, um, why do, why do I love it? And why have I done it? It is really, truly the ultimate expression of collaboration, cohesion that enables high performance teams, um, on a good day without COVID. So I would say even in, in, in my past before, long, long before COVID, uh, we had COVID, I had little ensembles that I would run inside some of these big pharma names that you referenced in the beginning of our call, um, where I would do something called lunch and laugh with little groups of people. And we would do, you know, literally over lunchtime, we would do little improv exercises. And then we'd go back, you know, go back into our cubby holes and do our work and continue to sometimes work together and develop new access models or no new business models. And so I think I caught that really early on that, you know, when you are improvising, the rules of improv um, help you become a leader in a way that you never expected because you're able to, you know, lead with the, the goal of collaboration first. So it, I'll, I'll say very quickly, the rules of, of improv, they're very, very simple, but they're, you know, important and they're just as relevant for leadership. So number one, it's say yes and. So it's not enough to say just yes. You have to say yes and because the and is the invitation and the bridge to continue to develop, create together. It, in, order, in order to do that, we go to rule number two, which is you have to listen. And that means you can't plan ahead. You must be in the moment. And very often we'll do, we'll do exercises where we can only respond to the last word that someone said in a line of dialogue. When you practice that in a boardroom, in a meeting, either over Zoom or face-to-face, -face, you realize you have to be in the moment to listen to every word that has come out of that person's mouth, who is your partner, in your ensemble, in your team, in your family, in your community. Um, and then you can add your yes and. And the third rule is really to serve. And it, um, although it might sound a bit strange and out of place, because we're talking about comedy, it's not about being funny. It's about being a service to your ensemble. And you're only as strong in an ensemble um, as, as the weakest member of your ensemble at any given moment. And that means that any of us who are in an ensemble or a team in a place of work could fluctuate between strength and weakness on a given day, given, you know, resilience, given the stresses that we've had with COVID, given, you know, the, the stress of the stress and frustration of lockdown. So, you know, we have to be able to use those skills to really compensate for each other and be like truly agile and be sort of that team member in the moment that you need to be to compensate and to support each other. And then the last rule is fail with joy. Um, so we all know that we're going to make mistakes. Um, that's part of leadership. Leadership is never finished. It's not done. It's always an evolution of how you're going to get better, how you learn from your mistakes to keep picking yourself up and growing. Um, it's the same thing with improv comedy. So I think, you know, all of that, what I did, like I said before, in these kind of face-to-face -face workshops during, I applied all those skills actually during the lockdown period, during our extended Zoom period, extended, you know, physical distancing. And I would do weekly um, improv little exercises with my team and with any team that I was in for that matter. And what it really showed me was that ensemble culture that we were missing out on 
um, was still preserved. Um, the yes and mindset of building something together. And again, in the world of patient advocacy and the world of market access and patient access, being on your best game to keep creating together and brainstorm together and build something together, iterate together. The yes and mindset and yes and words are vital for that. And then, of course, working on listening. Even though we're physically separated, we still have to work on really improvising and perfecting our ability to listen to each other and be present for each other. And then also to serve. And that came in, the service came in so many different ways during the lockdown. Sometimes it was, you know, what can I do to help you? I know you're having a hard time with the lockdown or how do we serve each other um, in, in unique ways that we haven't before because we need to attend to our professional performance needs as well as our emotional needs. And so these tools really helped us. And of course, it also allowed us to experience, you know, kind of failing with joy and having a shared moment to laugh. And I think that that's what so many people I hear missed out on is, I think the New York Times ran an article last week on, you know, we're missing out from shared joy and shared um, exuberance, um, almost shared carbonation. We're missing out on these moments by being so physically separate from each other. But actually by using these improv tools over Zoom in this extended period of COVID, it actually helped me in with my team, my environment, to actually help us get to a higher level of cohesion, a higher level of community building, a higher level of performance, I hired six people during this period where I have no, I've never met them. I don't know how tall they are. You know, I, I always laugh and say, how big are your feet? You know, these jokes, because we, we never met each other, but we still are able to, to create this incredible cohesion by using these tools of improv um, online. And again, you know, I've embraced it because it helped with team building. It helped people feel like they were part of something when they were really, really missing out on physical connection. And it allowed us to continue to build on the great work we were doing to, in order to launch new products, to develop new products, to create new relationships and new therapeutic areas with patients that we had never um, interacted with before. And it felt very authentic. Um, and so I, I think that was really the secret of my success during this period and the secret of my team's success. And I think the company's success to continue to engage each other during this time by using these tools. No, it's absolutely um, fascinating and, and, and similar to, sounds like uh, within the EMG office, we have similar uh, similar issues about knowing exactly how tall some of our colleagues are or, or, mm. or aren't. Um, the abs absolutely fascinating way in terms of building those relationships, but in, this, in one sense, building that kind of sense of fun. But the, but the one thing for me, certainly, and, and you know, my exposure as, a, as an audience member of improv, just how sharp the the top performers are within improv and and i guess it's almost good it must be amazing training in terms of that if you're good at improv it must train you to to respond so, so quickly and, and i guess that's something that's not always the easiest to practice i guess is what i'm trying to say very true it's it, it is indeed a practice and i think um what's in, what's important to i think solidify is every practice is a learnable practice so learning a new language is initially hard. Anything new that you learn, a new language, um, a new computer program, um, how to assemble an Ikea Pax wardrobe, right? All these things that are new to us can be hard, but with practice, 
you actually become more and more familiar um, with them. And so there have been, you know, neuro, neuroscience studies of functional MRIs where experienced and inexperienced um, improvisers have gone into a functional MRI and they've been doing some improvisational comedy activity or sometimes even viewing comedy. And what you see is that your, you know, the, the, the executive function, which is your executive editor, is kind of suppressed during that period. That allows you to have more kind of neuroplasticity. Um, it creates the, the conditions for neuroplasticity so that you can create yourself and with others. Uh, so I think that's one thing is that, you know, the tools just really lower your, they lower your guard um, so that you can create. And I, I really do believe that, you know, the listeners of the EMG podcast, those of us who work in pharma, we work in healthcare, we are mission-driven people. We are highly educated people. We've gone through years and years of schooling to be able to get to these leadership roles, to be able to do these jobs that we dreamed of doing. And very often along the way, we never learned how to really listen well. And that's something that I, I observe in meetings where, you know, conflict is rising, people aren't listening um, to each other, um, and the rules of improv and the tools of improv actually can teach you to listen. Um, so I say that's applied improv in the business environment, but also on stage, you know, as you say, it's a practice. People are learning how to be really present. So you turn off your executive function, your editing function, your internal editor, you become more open, you listen to others, and you can co-create in a way that you wouldn't if you were just sitting behind a desk brainstorming in a normal way. Um, I, I just, I really have appreciated this deep dive into this practice myself because I actually, I, I train and I perform actually still online with a, uh, a theater in North America called Second City. Um, and I really look forward to uh, that weekly session for myself um, that I can bring back into the team because it's really like yoga for the brain. It's a, it's a loud, mindful meditation. And many, many companies are investing in mindfulness. Um, and this is really a form of short-circuiting mindfulness. So some, some choose to meditate, some choose to do these practices, um, which we call mindfulness. Um, this is a mindfulness practice. And if you're impatient and don't want to sit on the floor and say, um, <laughs> actually try improv because it's, it is a short-circuiting into the result of mindfulness. Um, and again, I have to emphasize that the applied improv, you know, my first moment of really realizing this works is when I was working um, in a, a very large pharma company in Basel, where we use these tools to really brainstorm how we could create a new model of, of the business that could accelerate access to patients in the lowest developing economies. And to this day, that model still stands. It still is something that the CEO speaks about at the quarterly updates of performance. And I'm particularly proud because we use those tools in, a mo in the most meaningful way, which is towards our goal of accelerating patient access for the patients that need it the most. Really interesting how, how it's really helped you and, and your career and, and that management. Um, Staying on the topic of leadership, you're, a, you're an active advocate for women and other disenfranchised groups in senior leadership positions. I was wondering, how can the industry encourage other minorities, be that people of colour or those within the LGBTQIA plus community and so on, to the forefront of leadership? So excellent question. Thanks, Mark. 
I, um, I agree that I am an advocate for all of those populations that you're talking about. Um, and, you know, what we see very often with minority representation, with LGBTQ+, with women, you, you see large levels of per percentages of those people entering into our pharmaceutical industry at the entry level. So 61, for example, for women, 61% of entry level roles, 50 to 61%, you know, tends to be female at the entry level roles. And then as you rise over time, that, that funnel becomes more and more narrow and women are dropping out and you're not seeing women at the, at the executive leadership level where you're seeing only 20%, 15% at the executive leadership level. I think we have an issue with um, not having representation there. Um, we have a lack of um, sponsorship at that level as well. So what I often advise women, LGBTQ+, as well as members of minority communities is to, to, to really find sponsors who are at that level who can help you. We don't have enough of the people that are just like us. Like there's not enough women or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, other, other minorities who are speaking, speaking up at the executive, executive level to show that it's possible in every, in full representation. So the people who are at that level have a responsibility to reach back in the organization to both mentor and sponsor and champion those people to pull them up into those mid-level positions, senior level positions, and executive level positions. So how concretely how some of that works is, you know, to programs like reverse mentoring, making sure that every member on your board or on your executive team has a young person who is a mentor, like this reverse mentoring thing, or a person of color, LGBTQ+, so that you can actually understand what's happening in that population in your organization and hear them pull them up. Another thing is really at the recruitment stage is, you know, it's not about having one of each of these elements. You've got to have at least two of each of these areas you're trying to build your representation in. Because if you only have one representation, one of that type in your uh, applicant pool, interview pool, you're not going to take you're not going to take that um, one of those. The, the stats are, are looking not uh, very positive towards taking one of those people. So you got to have multiple representation in the interview pool, um, and, which helps you know having better uh, opportunities for hiring minorities into those roles. Um, but we have we have a lot of work to do and. I think um, coming back to what you're asking earlier about COVID and some of the, the echoes of COVID from a leadership perspective, from a patient perspective, patient engagement perspective, I think also from a, a diversity inclusion perspective, we've now proven that, you know, with a dial-up, with a Wi-Fi dial-up, you can work from anywhere. So we're going to start sourcing talent from a global palette because the requirement to being physically present, to being physically tied to one city where we have physical presence is going to become less and less relevant. And so we're gonna be able to open up much, much more um, to where the talent is because we'll be able to have this very mobile population. I, I did a, a clubhouse session last week with some leaders in market access in, in the Middle East and they were asking, you, how do we start getting involved 
in these areas into these large organizations where we want to be a part of the development cycle. We want to be part of, you know, the leadership track that can get us up higher into the organization, into leadership roles and senior leadership roles and executive leadership roles. And I really, I really encourage them all to embrace this moment that we have of the decentralization, like some organizations call it unbossing or agility, where we have a flattened out organization, which allows the teams to work and form like we do an improv, for example, form an ensemble or a team at the moment that is required to solve the problem that's in front of us um, from wherever those people are, wherever the expertise is held. So I think that is going to be one of the great door openers for, for expanding diversity and inclusion um, because we're able to draw from a global palette of talent. That's really interesting. I mean, do, do you see that starting to shift already or do you, do you think that's more of a two, three, four, five years and, and beyond? Well, um, I reside in Basel, Switzerland, and it's fascinating to see how um, the different, you know, top five, we can say it, the top five pharma companies are three of the top five pharma companies are located here. Um, and you see one of the largest players, Novartis, has actually said, we have changed our working policies and we will allow you to work wherever you live. We're no longer requiring you to move to Basel if you want a headquarter role or you know, to, to work in. Of course, if you're a part of manufacturing, and that's a different story. But if you're part of like leadership or part of strategy, you're part of marketing, finance, et cetera, HR, access, policy advocacy, they're allowing for those roles to be sourced wherever the talent is. Um, and so I see this being played out in front of us, which in the community in Basel, it's been a bit of a surprise because Novartis has invested heavily in infrastructure, which is physical infrastructure for their campus, which is quite quite strikingly beautiful, you know, as a, as a as an architectural feat that they've been able to accomplish. Yet they're now... Um, opening up the office space and renting it into the community and they're allowing people to be working from wherever they are. So this is one of your biggest pharma companies in the world that's already rolled this out. So I think the other companies, we see blended models popping up all around in other industry um, examples as well. So I think, you know, Novartis is often the leader in these things. They led an unbossing, the agility, um, the, the agility transformation, which is called unbossing in their language. They've also led now on the work wherever you are. Roche has also done a lot of work around agility and flattening the organization to create kind of sprinting teams wherever um, as a moment of requirement to form, again, that ensemble culture, like we talk about in improv, to form the team that you need to solve the problem that's in front of you. So I think these different organizations are really building that in in a unique, creative way. And I think there'll be, you know, Harvard, Harvard Business Review cases, um, papers written on all these organizations and how they do it as a future of work example in healthcare, in pharma, but also in other industries as well. Really, really interesting. And obviously, certainly within the UK, a, a kind of a, a hot topic here right now is um, as COVID restrictions ease and it's more discussion about hybrid models or whatever it whatever it may be. So it'd be really interesting to see how that moves forward in time. Um so you're a long-standing supporter and, and champion of public health. 
talking, I guess, of predictions in in the next few years, what are your predictions for the advancements in public health over the next five, 10 years? Okay, Mark, I think we have two days listed for this interview. <laughs> Absolutely. Let's, let's go. Buckle your seatbelts, everyone. Here we go. No, um, I think, you know, the pub- public health that we speak about global health issues or, or looking at, um, for example, neglected disease areas. And it's always tragic to use that word because neglected disease um, areas often mean that the large Western Northern pharmaceutical companies aren't investing their R&D units in those areas. Um, where, where they're not neglected diseases at all. They're high burden, um, high epidemiology, high burden diseases where there's a huge human toll and economic toll on the lack of investment that's happened in those um, disease areas. So I think, you know, um, with the sustainable development goals, with the, the work that the UN has done with WHO, with the large funders like the Gates Foundation being very vocal about how we are going to have very specific global health targets, public health targets, specifically around neglected diseases in the developing world. Um, There are very concrete, hard targets that have been issued by the World Health Assembly, by the UN General Assembly that we need to go after. So I think it's a perfect marriage of those kind of political will, governments coming together to create the political will to make statements and targets that will enable funding and incentives for the development in those disease, drug development in those disease areas to create the incentives for public-private um, partnerships in the, the creation of access initiatives, healthcare systems, sustainability initiatives, and of course, public-private development partnerships in the development of drugs itself. That's like this perfect confluence between the target the mechanisms, mechanisms of collaboration, plus the technology that we've never had before that enables us to bridge some of these access um, hurdles, physical access hurdles that we have or information or capability access hurdles. You know, um, we've, we've, there's a lot of uh, emphasis around, you know, at a moment in time, Richard Branson, Sir Richard Branson just did his first commercial space flight. Um, we see a lot of exciting work that's happening around you know satellite nano nano satellites that are going up into the low orbit um, uh, low orbit earth gravity um, which will enable 5g which will essentially give us coverage in those areas where we have information or coverage wi-fi deserts so that we're going to be able to um, bridge gaps from a global health perspective um, and neglected disease perspective where we can enable telemedicine, we can enable digitization of healthcare, we'll be able to have physical access that is um, bridged by using drone technology, etc. We speak about that in the developing world from a public health perspective, global health perspective, those innovations are just as relevant that we have in Europe where we still have information deserts, we have coverage deserts. And as those technologies are rolled out, it will enable us to have healthcare that is effectively geographically agnostic so that we can consume healthcare, receive healthcare in our home, in our self-driving car, right? Um, In our home, but we won't need to go to a sick house, i.e. a hospital to receive care. We can actually receive it at home. And again, all of this technology that we finally have, 5G, the AI, 
the the you know the machine learning aspect of understanding how big data can be consolidated into decision support augmentation of decision making in healthcare workers that support patients to live their very best patient journey and their very best diagnostic shortest diagnostic journey and care journey to treat their diseases it's a real revolution that we're going to be experiencing in these coming years 5 to 10 years Wow, definitely something I'd, I'm aware of a lot of the technologies you've, you've been talking about, but actually how how they potentially come together and create, a, I guess, a, I guess like a, de, a de, decentralization almost of, of, of healthcare in terms of where you need to be or, or don't need to be, I guess, in future. Totally agree. It's a total autonomization. And um, as a result, it is a, a, you know, an empowerment for patients themselves to be able to speak up for what they need, what they want, um, where they want it, how they want it, et cetera. Um, and these are also going to drive costs down for the healthcare system. So we'll be able to eliminate some waste and increase speed and efficiency to deliver care. Yeah, which I, I guess is even more important for the, um, for the developing world. Um, no, that's absolutely fascinating. Um, so, so move, moving on, um, as I mentioned in the introduction, you've, you've lived and worked throughout Europe for, for the past 22 years, but I'm dying to know which has been your favourite country so far, and um, are there any that you've set your sights on for the future? I, I assume this might be improv related, and where, where might have the best improv scene? Uh, you know, I, I have really um, had an incredible journey over these last 22 years, living outside of my country of birth and country of citizenship. You know, you mentioned Belgium, Denmark, Switzerland. I I even lived in Bosnia. I lived um, in the Caucasus, so between Armenia, Georgia, Azerbaijan. Um, and, and I really have to say, if, if you've spent time in the Caucasus or the Balkans, there is a kind of uh, fervent um, hospitality and passion, which is really quite compelling to be around that I think the the experience of living in those places makes you feel quite alive. Um, the generosity, the hospitality of those locations I've really enjoyed. Um, uh, you know, I, I will say right now it's, it's, it's really nice to live in Switzerland. I, I enjoy skiing. So I get to ski a lot in this, in the winter. Um, do I have my sights on a new geography? I, I really don't know. And I think for me, one of the, one of the great, things that has allowed me to be delighted by where I get to work and what I get to do is instead of saying the how of how I want my career or my life to be, it's very much about what's the principle, what's the, what's the purpose that I have and um, I can see it. So if my purpose, my massively transformative purpose is helping people and patients, you know, live their best lives um, and, I think over time, you know, again, going from patient to really people and how do, how do we support people to, to develop leaders into the next level? Um, and I, and I, if I eliminate the how, it allows me to actually be more flexible in how that um, purpose is then um, delivered uh, in the form of different, different roles I've had professionally or even different geographies, like you say, Mark. No, I think that's um, definitely a great outlook to... Um... To, to have and um, we obviously look forward to hearing about any uh, future countries um, hopefully maybe in another episode when we can get you back in at some point um, 
So thank you so much for, for joining me today to, to share your thoughts, Jennifer. It's been, been absolutely brilliant speaking to you. Mark, thank you for this opportunity. Um, I, I really, uh, it's been an honor to be able to spend time with you and to, again, to hopefully, you know, spread this word and the excitement that we have around having patient-centric um, approaches to how we develop medicines, how we develop healthcare solutions, and how we launch them and create access for all patients that need them as quickly as possible. Thanks a lot to you and your organization. Thank you. And, and it feels like a, a great way to, to end the episode um, this week. So don't forget to check out our, our digital magazine at www.emg-gold.com for plenty of articles, interviews and news on everything and anything related to pharma. And remember to tune in every Tuesday for more insights from great thought leaders like Jennifer from within and outside of the industry. So thank you for listening. Take care and see you soon on the EMG Gold podcast. Thank you.